I'm going to invite all of you to stand together as we join in the reading of uh, God's Word. Now, the text this morning was a little lengthy to print in the bulletin, so uh, you either can follow along in your Bible or the Pew Bible, or you can listen as I uh, read read God's Word. We're looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Uh, You'll recognize this as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen and who feasted luxuriously every day. At his gate lay a certain poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Instead, dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in the place of the dead, he looked up and saw Abraham at a distance with Lazarus at his side. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm suffering in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things. Whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted and you are in great pain. Moreover, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you. Those who wish to cross over from here to you cannot. Neither can anyone cross from there to us. The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He needs to warn them so that they don't come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will change their hearts and lives. Abraham said, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. You may be seated. Provided an outline of this morning's message, and uh, uh, I hope that you'll take that in hand. I think it'll be helpful as we look at God's Word together. A seminary student was at his little small church for the very first Sunday, and he was a nervous wreck. Not only was he preaching the sermon, it was his responsibility to conduct the choir and lead the music as well. He leads the choir in their anthem, and once they finish it, he's relieved that it went pretty well, and so he turns around, goes to the pulpit, and says to the congregation, now let us all stand and sing when we all get to heaven while the choir goes down below. In these days and in these times, when a preacher, particularly a Methodist preacher, talks about heaven or hell, it's usually in the form of humor. Because quite frankly, that's the only way we're comfortable talking about it. At least talking about hell. 
I need to talk about heaven and hell this morning, and I have to do it in a little bit more sober and realistic tone. I'll never forget the occasion several years ago when I received a phone call letting me know that Chris, a 38-year-old father and husband who was a member of the church at the time, was out of town on a business trip. He blacked out, passed out, was rushed to a hospital there in that city. And the doctors diagnosed him with a massive brain tumor about the size of a baseball. Because of the location of the tumor, they could not do surgery. And his prognosis was not good at all. He was life-flighted from there to Atlanta to a hospital there. And it was there at that hospital in Atlanta where I sat by his side at his bed. And given the gravity of the moment, it was clear to both him and to me that this was not a time for small talk. This was not a time to dance around realities. This time and this moment required some serious conversation. He was a member of my church, but I didn't have any idea really just what the state of his soul was, whether or not he had a relationship with Christ. And even though it was awkward and difficult, I just felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit to push through all the veneer and say, Chris, as your pastor, I've got to ask you a question. You could live through this, but the doctors say you might not. Chris, are you ready to die? And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he closed his eyes, and he gave an affirmative nod, but neither one of us were really convinced. We shared some more conversation, and I prayed with him, and I left the hospital room. Days went by, Chris got stronger. He was actually able to leave the hospital. One day I'm in my office, four months later, Chris shows up unannounced. And he comes in and he says, Stuart, I've just got to tell you, it really made me angry that day. When I'm laying there in my hospital bed, I just got that news. It really angered me that you asked me that question if I was prepared to die. He said, you need to know I have thought of nothing else for the last four months. And I've come here today to talk to you because I've come to realize that I don't know the answer to that question. And I need to know. I want to know so that the next time I'm ever asked if I'm ready to die, I won't have to dance around. I'll know for sure. And so for the next several hours, we we talked about God. We talked about faith in Christ. We talked about what it means to surrender one's heart and life to Jesus. We talked about what it means to confess our sins and to seek to, to live as a follower of Christ and trust Christ completely with the rest of our lives. And at the end, we prayed together. And Chris, for the first real time, he said, made a decision to become a Christ follower. And we shook hands, we hugged, and he left. 
And even though it had been difficult and awkward for me to ask that question four months earlier, I thank God that he'd given me the courage to ask it. Because it launched an inquiry in the heart and soul of that young man that might not have ever happened. And Chris came into my office that morning hell-bent. But he walked out of that office heaven-bound. This parable that we're looking at this morning talks about life and death. It tells us that from the moment we take our first breath, we are on a journey, and that journey has one of two destinations. Heaven or hell. And this parable points out to us that the life that we have here uh, does not end when we take our last breath, that we're headed somewhere, we're moving towards something. We are either heaven-bound or we are hell-bent. Now, trust me, I fully understand. I get it, and there's a heaviness in my heart this morning even to, to broach this subject because I, believe, I understand that we live in a time and age in which good people, good Christian people, uh, a lot of uh, people in the sophisticated world today, uh, we're not sure we believe in a literal heaven or especially a literal hell today. You see, the focus for a lot of us is not, is there life after death? The focus is, is there life after birth? And what we want to know is, can life be meaningful and abundant and happy and fulfilling here in this life, in this world? And somehow the notion of a life after death is just not all that important. And even if it were, a, a lot of us have a hard time really believing. We hear a lot of talk about fake news today. And maybe some people think, well, maybe that's what this is. Maybe when the Bible talks about it, when preachers talk about heaven and when they talk about hell, that's just fake news. That's not reality. It's not something I need to be concerned about. Maybe you saw a part of the funeral service for the police officer, Stephen McDonald, in New York the other day. He's a police officer who, who 20, 30 years ago was shot and paraplegic for the rest of his life, but he forgave the person who tried to take his life. And he lived an exemplary life. And his son leaned over the casket and said, I love you, Dad. I'll see you on the other side. Is there another side? Is that real, or is that just religious poppycock? If we believe the Scriptures, and if we trust in the words of Christ himself, we can't get around the fact that Scripture and Christ affirm that there is a heaven, and equally there is a hell. Now, what is heaven going to be like? Is it going to be... Uh, roads paved with gold and gates of pearl? I, I, or is it just going to be, or are those just metaphors for uh, describing something that's going to be far more magnificent and wonderful than we can possibly imagine? I don't know. What's hell going to be like? Is it going to literally be a lake of fire? Is there going to be gnashing of teeth and, and, and chronic long-term eternal suffering and pain and agony? Or is that 
and held just a vague, dark separation from God. I, I, I don't know. But clearly, Jesus, all the Bible writers, centuries of doctrine of our church affirm that there are two destinations to which all of us are headed. And, and that's why Jesus tells us this parable of the rich man and the beggar. He wants us to know that this is not the only life that we have here on earth. He wants us to know that there's life that awaits us. And he wants us to choose heaven. Now, when we look at this parable, when we unpack it, it seems to be suggesting some basic truths that we need to come to terms with. And it's these. First, this parable lets us know that you and I have two lives. We have the temporal life, which is our life here on earth, and we have the eternal life, which is that life that we inherit when we die. And Jesus wants us to understand that the temporal life is not all that matters. It shouldn't be the life that gets all of our attention, though it often does. I mean, let's face it. Most of us, even as people of faith, we spend most of our time probably thinking about the temporal life. We think about the pleasures of this life, the, the wants that we have, the needs that we have. Uh, we think about the relationships we have. And we pretty much think of life being here, and we minimize or ignore the fact of the eternal life. And yet the reality is we're going to spend way, way, way more time in the eternal life than we are in the temporal life. Now, in a parable, the rich man has a great temporal life on earth, but he has a lousy eternal life. His temporal life, he's wealthy, he has it all, he's got all he needs and more. But in his eternal life, he's experiencing a tormenting hell. On the other hand, the beggar has a lousy temporal life. He has to beg for his survival. He's got body sores. He has, he's hungry. A good day for this guy is when the rich man throws food scraps out. He's got a lousy temporal life, but he's got a fantastic eternal life. And the story suggests that the rich man in torment will gladly trade places with Lazarus because he realizes now how much more important the eternal life is than the temporal. We share his dilemma. You see, like him, we are happy when the temporal life is going well. We've got nice cars, we live in a nice home, we might have a condo at the beach or a house at the lake, we have the capacity to buy the clothes that we need, the food that we need, and seldom do we ever give thought of where we're going to spend eternity. 
And a lot of people say, their, their attitude is, listen, don't bother me with the demands of heaven or the fears of hell. I'm having too good a time here and now. And that was him. That was the, the rich man. So the fundamental reality that we're being confronted here with, the first is this, that you and I have two lives. Now, some people are going to have a, a lousy temporal life and a lousy eternal life. Some people are going to have a great temporal life, but a lousy eternal life. Some people are going to have a lousy temporal life and a lousy eternal life. Christ's desire for us, however, is that we have a fantastic temporal life, but we also have an even more fantastic eternal life. And that's what he offers. He says, I'm coming you might have what? Life and have it abundantly. We have two lives. Secondly, this parable reveals something about eternal life that maybe we haven't thought that much about, and it's this. Once we're there, we're there. Once we're there, we're there. There's no shuffling about back and forth. Once we've reached our eternal destiny, whether it is heaven, we're there forever. Whether it's hell, we're there Forever. Look at verses 25 through 26. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus because received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between you, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. What an awful thing to comprehend. That between heaven and hell, between eternity with God and eternity without God, there's no bridge, there's no pathway there's no crossing. Once you're there, you're there. We would do well to think long and hard about that. Do you know that statue, the thinker? We've, we've probably all seen that at least in our art appreciation uh, books in high school or college. It's that statue, you know, the figure sitting on a boulder and he has his elbow and his knee and it his chin in, in his hand, and he's contemplating. Have you ever wondered what he's thinking about? The thinker is an independent piece of art, a beautiful statue that uh, we have come to, de- to determine is a symbol of philosophy. He's thinking about the great mysteries of life, or, or he's thinking about uh, the great mysteries of the universe. But before the thinker was a statue that we've come to know all by itself, it was really intended for something else. In 1880, Auguste Rodin, French sculptor, was commissioned to do a work that eventually would end up in a French museum. The, the work was a massive 
bronze statue, piece of art, called the Gates of Hell. Over 20 feet high, 15 feet wide, and with amazing intricacy and design, uh, the artist portrays what he felt the agony, the torment of hell must be. And if you stand there and look at it, it's, it's almost overwhelming. But do you know what, what's at the very top of the gates of hell? A statue called the Thinker. You see, originally, in its smaller form, he sits there contemplating, looking on what's below him. He's not contemplating the mysteries of life. He's contemplating the reality of hell and the torment and the agony of what that must be. You and I would do well to think about the reality of hell because once we're there, we're there. And so, the third aspect of this parable, thank God the parable doesn't leave us in this state of despair. But we see an important third lesson in this parable, and it is this. The best advice for us is to listen and believe and act upon what God says is true. Look at verse 27 through 31. The rich man, now condemned, unable to save himself, says to Abraham, send Lazarus to my house to warn my father and my five brothers. Abraham says, what makes you think that's going to do any good? They have the teachings of Moses and the prophets. They know, how important, they know the importance of obeying God. But the rich man says, no, no, no. Listen, if someone from the dead like Lazarus goes and warns them, that will make an impression. That's going to get their attention. And Abraham says, listen, if they won't believe in the prophets and in Moses, they won't be convinced if even someone rises from the dead. Wouldn't it be amazing, life-changing to you? And just go with this for a minute. What if? Assuming that there's a heaven, assuming, I'm assuming there's a hell, assuming hell is real, imagine someone from hell is able to come and to talk with you. And they say, listen, you need to understand. Hey, I know we'd sit around and we'd laugh and we'd talk about, you know, hell and what it might be like and, and we joked about it. Trust me, this is no laughing matter. You don't want anything to do with this. Believe what Christ said. Would that make a difference to you if somebody from hell actually literally came and sat in front of you and said, look, you need to wake up? I suspect that it would make a difference. Well, that's probably not going to happen. But we do have information, reliable information, 
about eternal life already. And if we're smart, we'll believe and we'll listen and we'll act upon what God says is true. So what is that truth? Matthew 7.21. Look at it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father in heaven. So that begs the question, what is the will of the Father? Two things. The will of the Father, first, is to receive the Son. God's Word says, God did not send Christ into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be what? Saved. God sent Jesus Christ to be Lord, to be Savior, and His desire is that we receive the Son. Matthew 17, 5, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. And secondly, the will of the Father is to follow the Son. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. It's not those who say, Lord, Lord, that enter the kingdom of heaven. It's those that do the will of the heavenly Father. You see, how we live in the temporal life says a lot about where we're going to experience the eternal life. Now, I'm going to tread on some, some tricky theological uh, ice right now, and I hope I don't fall into it, but please let me try to work through this. It's a common understanding, we hear it all the time, that good works do not get us into heaven. And that's true. No amount of good works will ever get us into heaven. The other side of that is that an authentic faith in Christ always results in good works. We don't do good works to get to heaven We do good works because we have come to experience the love and the forgiveness and the grace of God. Doing good works will never get us into heaven, but this parable is suggesting that ignoring good works altogether can possibly usher us into hell. Now, why is the rich man in hell? Why? Because he never lifted a finger to help someone in need. He never lifted a finger to help Lazarus outside his gate. Good works will never get us into heaven, but the parable is suggesting that ignoring good works can usher us into hell.
And so, the question for us is when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the heavenly Father, the question for us is, where do I, where do you fall in response to Jesus' statement here? Am I doing, am I living the will of the Father? Which is to receive the Son, but also to follow the Son. You and I have two lives. The temporal and the eternal. We preachers, we preach probably... If we're going to preach on these topics at all, we're going to, we're going to preach 95% of the time about heaven. We might occasionally mention hell. I'm uncomfortable talking about it, trust me. I've, I've been burdened. Uh, you know, Somebody after the 8.30 service said, Are you okay? You, you look just kind of drained. I said, I am drained. And I, he said, why? I said, well, it's the subject matter. You know, it's hard to talk about this. But the reality of hell becomes a distant concern when you know and you know and you know and you trust Christ who promises eternity with the Father to all who know Him and love Him and seek to do His will. C.S. Lewis, and I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis, a great Christian uh, theologian, thinker, uh, once said this, and I've included this at the bottom of your outline. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. May our reflection on the next world increase so that we might live in this world more effectively. In just a moment, we're going to sing our closing hymn, number 368. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's a great hymn and a great affirmation for us. But before we sing, um, I would be guilty of pastoral malpractice if I stood up here and talked about heaven and hell and didn't invite you to affirm one or the other in your own heart and life. So this morning, uh, as we sing the hymn, and we'll sing it however many times we need, or we'll just have people play it, we'll have David play it if we need to. As we sing the hymn this morning, uh, I want to intentionally open the altar for you to come, for you to be in prayer. If you are hell-bent, if you look at your life right now, if you look at your decisions, if you look about your relationships, if you look at uh, the, the things you're doing,
if you come to the conclusion that you currently are hell-bent and you, you want to break that, then I invite you to come and just spend some time at the altar and pray and ask God for forgiveness and ask God to change your heart and make a decision to accept Christ. Begin living as a follower of Christ. But here's the other invitation. Not just those of you who might be convinced you're hell-bent. If you're convinced this morning that you are heaven-bound, and you have the assurance that you are heaven-bound, then you come to the altar and, and you just pray and you pour out your heart thanking God for what He has done to make that possible. Thank Him for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank, you, thank Him for uh, the, 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 the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life and, and, and ask that His grace continue to, to live and, and dwell in you so that more and more you can live a life that's honoring Him. I guess I'll just leave you with this. Don't be naive and think that this is all we have. We're on a journey. We're on a journey. There's two destinations. We know what they are. Let's choose wisely. Let's pray. Oh, God, it's painful to talk about the reality of hell. We don't understand it. We don't like it. Lord, it raises all kinds of theological questions in our hearts as to why it's a reality, but Jesus talks about it. All of Scripture talks about it. We are naive and foolish to ignore its reality. Whatever shape or form it takes. And so God, I just pray that you would uh, reach down from the glory of your heaven right now and reach into the hearts of all who may be questioning whether or not their life is in your hands. God, just place within all of us a desire to love you and to live a life that's obedient and after your heart so that we can have both a marvelous, amazing temporal life here and the assurance of an even more amazing, incredible life in heaven with you. It's in the name and spirit of Christ that we pray. Amen.